You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome back, everyone, to the last portion of this year's JNSLP Symposium. The program has been a great success so far, and I hope that many of you have been able to be present for and learn something from the previous panels. We have a real treat as the uh, as the final stage of the symposium, which uh, is a, a plenary position to uh, be given by uh, Jim Steinberg, former Deputy Secretary of State, but uh, interviewed by a, an equally sage China hand, Professor Jim Feinerman. I'll introduce both briefly, but I'd also like to pause for a moment, one, to plug the journal. Uh, we hope that many of you will consider writing for the journal, you budding young scholars as well as uh, more seasoned, we always welcome new submissions. As you know, we're a peer-reviewed journal, which makes us somewhat unique among law publications, and the journal has a stellar reputation. Professor Jim Feinerman is the James and Catherine Denny Chair in Democratic Capitalism. He's also the James Morita Professor of Asian Legal Studies. He's co-director of the Georgetown Law Asia, uh, Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, he's had a, a, an extensive a career in working on issues regarding China from the earliest days uh, of his law firm practice to uh, a Fulbright position at Peking University. Uh, also uh, a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship to study China's practice of international law. He's been a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, from uh, from the Law Center at Georgetown. He was also director of the Committee on Scholarly Communication with China and was also editor-in-chief of the ABA's China Law Reporter for several years. He co-edits a volume called The Limits of the Rule of Law in China and was co-author of China After the WTO, What You Need to Know. Jim Steinberg is the University Professor of Social Science, International Affairs and Law at Syracuse University where he was Dean of the Maxwell School from 2011 to 16. Prior to that, uh, as many of you know, uh, Jim was Deputy Secretary of State, Principal Deputy to Secretary Hillary Clinton from 2009 to 11. Uh, prior to that, he was Dean of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, and earlier at the Brookings Institution, Vice President and Director of Foreign Policy, studies section. Prior to that, Deputy National Security Advisor to uh, President Clinton from 1996 to 2000. He was uh, the President's representative to the 1998 and 9 G8 summits. Prior to his service as National Security Advisor, Deputy, he held positions as Director of the State Department's Policy Planning Staff, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Analysis in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. He's won multiple awards, has a lengthy list of publications, many of them related to China. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Professor Feinerman. Well, thank you, William. And uh, it's my pleasure to uh, be participating in this event today and have the opportunity to speak with former Deputy Secretary uh, Steinberg, who I think has a lot of ability to reflect on decades of our relationship with China that seem to tie up uh, many of the things that were discussed in the earlier panels of the symposium. I guess first I'd like to know, you know, what's top of mind for you, Jim, 
with regard to our relationship with China. The uh, symposium so far has discussed the problems of you know, continuing threats, uh, our technology disputes, the South China Sea, the Indo-Pacific, and also the uh, human rights situation in China, particularly in parts of China like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. But that's a wide menu of things to you know, pick apart, and there may be something that is particularly concerning right now. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks to everybody, including Bill, for uh, having me on the program. I'm a great fan of the work of the JSE, and, um, and as Bill said, was happy to be a contributor a few years back, so pleased to be with you all, pleased to be with you and all the contributions that you've made. So I, I think I'd like to start at 30,000 feet because we can talk about the specific issues, and there are a lot to talk about in each of these things, but I think... Uh, it's useful to reflect on the overall state of the relationship because that's really what's at the top of my mind, not least of which because inevitably whenever you have a new administration in either side, either in China or in the United States, the overall approach really becomes the issue. And certainly there was a lot of talk during the campaign about U.S. strategy towards China. We know that the new administration is working on a comprehensive review of China policy and the first high-level meeting took place just this past week. And so I think, you know, for me, what's on the top of my mind is, you know, what, what's the overall shape of the relationship? What, what is the character of this relationship going for? How do each side see each other, see each other's intentions, and how they want to orient themselves towards each other? It's obvious to everybody who's listening that that has been both in flux in recent years and increasingly contentious in recent years. Um, and so... The real issue is after a significant period of deterioration of U.S.-China relations across the board, really, uh, in almost every domain, um, is, uh, is it possible to find a new framework, uh, a new arrangement that will help stabilize the relationship, manage the many deep differences between us, and, and make it possible to cooperate on areas where we have common interests? For a long time, we had a framework for U.S.-China relations, and it was based on an implicit understanding on both sides that we had a lot to gain from working with each other. And the relationship was, as the political scientists and the international relations theorists called a plus some relationship that, or as the Chinese like to call it, a win-win relationship, um, that we could both benefit from working together. That worked for a long time because uh, China relatively weak, the United States was very strong. And so China was content to sort of let the United States rule the world and not challenge the United States and the United States was uh, willing to support China's growth, economic and political, and even tolerate its growth militarily because it didn't feel threatened by China and saw a lot to be gained from China as an emerging market, as a potential partner on a, a range of issues. But that basic framework broke down beginning in the late 2000s and certainly over the last decade uh, and hasn't been replaced by any other new understanding about what the, the deep character of the relationship was going to be. So that's what's on my mind. Is it possible to develop a new framework that would allow for relatively stable relations, or are we uh, headed towards a much more confrontational relationship in which almost every aspect is contested? Well, that makes me think of uh, you know what transpired uh, just recently in the the meeting in Alaska between uh, the U.S. And, and China, where on the one hand there was a great deal of public acrimony in the things that were completely open and available for the press and television to cover. But then we hear afterwards that you know, people got down to business quite quickly uh, once the public spat was over. And that might be something that explains the sort of two sides of the relationship. On the one hand, 
uh, we do have serious differences and things that we're you know not going to be able to find common ground about. But there are a lot of things that we we should and and probably want to have some uh, commonality of interest and and work with the Chinese about. I think that's right. I mean, I one of the things I've learned over the years, both being in and out of government, is you have to be very careful about coming on things that you don't really know about. And I don't think we know a lot of uh, detail about what went on once the public session ended. And so, you know, I think we'll have to wait and see. As you say, there have been reports that it's been productive. I don't have any inside information to share or any uh, perspective on that. So I think, you know, we'll see in the coming days, weeks, and months, you know, whether there is an opportunity to try to stabilize the relationship and, and find ways to work forward. I think it's important, and I think it's self-evident, is that these problems aren't just going to be solved, and certainly not solved overnight. There are some just fundamentally deep differences between our two countries. Um, that's always been true. There are political differences, there are differences in our economic systems, there are differences in our view about aspects of what the international order should look like, and neither side is likely going to just uh, accept the other's view. But the question is whether we can find a way to, to manage those differences without them either interfering with the areas where we have common interests or deteriorating to the point where we get into a much more dangerous situation. But I guess that's a you know, critical question in the relationship. Is it possible to sort of paper over certain differences in order to pursue our mutual goals or uh, are we going to just find them constantly you know, exploding as a result of you know, various other flashpoints in the bilateral relationship or things that have to do with our regional interests? Well, we're certainly not going to paper over them, and I don't think we should paper over them. I don't think either side would be willing to do that, and I don't think either of their domestic constituencies would be prepared to have them do that. And it certainly explains some of the things that we heard publicly. I don't think I don't think it's necessary in order to have a, a, a productive relationship to pull your punches or to paper over the differences. I think that's at the essence. I don't think either side would do that. I think we all deeply believe in what we believe in, whether it's on human rights or political issues or the rule of law or freedom of navigation or any of, of those issues. And so, and I think, you know, both countries are capable of dealing with frank differences, frankly expressed. So I, I, don't, I don't think we seek to do that. It's the question of what we are going to do to implement them, which is to say, how do we deal with the fact that we have these differences and are we able to engage across a variety of fronts where, the, where there's both differences and commonalities. Um, you know, so clearly it means that we can have our differences, but if making progress on one issue requires making progress on every issue, then we will never make any progress because we aren't going to resolve these differences. They believe in their form of government. We think it's a horrific form of government. Um, you know, they believe in their, their economic system and there's deep state involvement. We think that's uh, distorting and it doesn't lead to the best outcomes. Um, but if we, can't, if we can't deal with the common interests, whether it's dealing with public health or climate change, because of those other differences, then we're going to be in a difficult position. So it's a question not of, as I say, of papering over or, or disregarding the differences. It's more seeing whether you can pursue different avenues through different channels simultaneously. I think there's also an impression, um, th this is not only in, in the popular press, but even among specialists, that the emergence of this kind of wolf warrior culture in China in recent years, which may have been there all along, but was you know suppressed, uh, has, has led to a, a new confrontational style that was slowly emerging, but was really kept under wraps until it's come to the forefront the last uh, half decade or so. 
know, there have always been what we would call hawkish voices in China. Um, I've seen that, you know, all through my career. Um, you, you know, inevitably hear former PLA officials, you know, making claims about, you know, how they should have a confrontation with the United States. And I think it's we it's certainly fair to say that that has become a more prominent feature, not just of former officials or commentators, but we've seen some of that among current officials and diplomats. I'm not sure there's an agreement within the leadership and, and uh, influential voices in, in Beijing about whether that's the right strategy. We, we see some of that and some of a more emollient kind of approach, certainly to the extent that this idea that China can just sort of throw its weight around and people have to, to accept it because China's the biggest guy on the block is troubling dangerous, and I think in the end, uh, counterproductive. One would hope that as the leadership in, in China looks at this and sees the way that it's really, you know, helped just consolidate opposition to what China's doing, that they might rethink it. I think the, the jury is out on, on that aspect of this more muscular, assertive aspect of, uh, of Chinese uh, foreign policy. And I guess there's also a question of whether or not that has spurred uh, on the U.S. side uh, a, a similar uh, kind of hawkish response. You know, one of the questions that emerged uh, during the campaign last year was that uh, Joe Biden, you know, was taking shots against uh, Donald Trump and, and his uh, weakness with regard to China and promising so something of a, a more potent opposition to uh, China's obvious attacks on what was considered to be the uh, existing international system and criticizing, although obviously with the advent of COVID and the pandemic, Trump changed his tune too. But uh, right up until you know January or February of 2020, it was virtually a love fest between uh, Trump and, uh, and and Xi, despite the uh, advent of you know tariffs and other things that were complicating the relationship. Yeah, you know, I don't. I mean, uh, it's it's very complicated. Whenever you talk about the Trump administration policy towards anything, to try to, you know, I don't want to sound partisan, but it just. I mean, there, there were so many uh, internal contradictions and, and oddities about it. And it wasn't just China. I mean, we saw this vis-a-vis North Korea and the President Trump's embrace of uh, uh, Kim Jong-il and, and, his, uh, and some of the other leaders who, you know, he developed a personal relationship with whose uh, activities seemed to be, you know, quite contrary to American interests. And so I think part of the critique that Canada and now President Biden you know, put forward is that it was just incoherent. I mean, we're getting the worst of both worlds, which is this strong personal relationship with Xi and yet confrontational and somewhat counterproductive policies on tariffs and the like. And so I think, you know, the, the, the important point here is that personal relationships have a place in foreign policy. But I think uh, the great wisdom is that one should not over rely either on good or bad personal relationships in the conduct of foreign policy. And I think the goal here is to be clear about what the policy is uh, and to have it be coherent and consistent. And I think that was one of the problems that we saw. You know, we had very harsh language coming out of um, the Secretary of State at the same time that President Trump was having these love fests with um, China's leader. Yes, uh, the parting shots that uh, Pompeo took against uh, China seemed to make it quite clear that he felt like there was a, a, a still a, you know, necessary inimical relationship that he was going to continue uh, as best he could when out of office to promote because of his individual but also institutional hostility to the rise of the PRC. You know, I think it's, I mean, it's, a, it's China's been a contentious issue in American politics for uh, most of our history. And um, certainly since the, uh, the communist revolution, 
1949, it has been a contentious issue, and, and it inevitably is going to be because of uh, our uh, discomfort and dislike of the, the form of government in China. And so um, we, we have to, it's always been a challenge for the United States to try to figure out how do we conduct foreign policy towards regimes that we disapprove of and which we think are violating basic and universal principles. Uh, and we have to find a way to, on the one hand, be clear that we, we, we not only disagree with the regime, but we think that they're, they're inconsistent with universal values, uh, but also recognize that we, we are not in a position to change that regime. And so we have to find a way uh, to make our views clear uh, and to hope for change over time while we continue to work with them uh, on issues of common concern. Well, and, and going back in relatively recent history, you know, it's it's interesting that the the emergence of a relationship between uh, the U.S. and the People's Republic really began with the uh, Kissinger-Nixon breakthrough, and that was predicated on a, a major break between Russia and uh, the Soviet Union, and then and the People's Republic, and they seem to have gotten back together again, maybe at least partly because of the mutual opposition that they have towards a new U.S. orientation and its foreign policy. You know, um, I'm these days. I'm not a policymaker. I'm more of a historian than a, than a policymaker. And you know, I think we we tend, we we deeply oversimplify the dynamic that took place in the late '60s and early '70s that led to the opening of China. There's certainly no doubt that one of the motivations for China to um, move closer to the United States uh, was its very tense relationships with the Soviet Union. But, but those had existed since the early 1960s. And there's no doubt that part of the reason that we were interested in moving towards China was to balance uh, against the Soviet Union. Uh, but it's important to remember at the same time that, that Nixon also uh, made openings towards Russia and the detente policy that led to the Helsinki agreements and the arms control agreements. And so it wasn't just us playing China against Russia. It was us recognizing, and as Kissinger sometimes has said, that it would be better for us for each to have better relationships with them than what they had with each other. It's also important to recognize that part of the reason why China wanted a better relationship with the United States is because as um, the leaders began to think about their future, um, they had to think about economic development. These were the latter days of Mao, and certainly the, the fruition of normalization came to place under Deng Xiaoping. And so it, it, you know, we, we, we tend to kind of do this balance of power security thing in terms of understanding the, the mutual decision to move forward to better relations in the 1970s, but there was a lot more going on. And I think the same is true today. There's no doubt that there's a much more cordial relationship between uh, Moscow and Beijing today than there was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether this is a strategic alliance or an alliance of convenience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the important thing to recognize is that um, the, there are some shared interests uh, between the, China and Russia, there are some divergences. And right now, it's a very unbalanced relationship, in which the Chinese are perfectly happy to have the support of Russia, but don't need it very much. Uh, whereas Russia needs um, China, perhaps uh, more than uh, China needs them. Yeah, one of the few friends, uh, I guess, that they, they have, uh, particularly given the long border that they share with the People's Republic, uh, that's always been a historical concern of uh, the Russian people and state. But to, to move uh, to some uh, more recent things that have uh, cropped up in the uh, relationship, particularly the uh, disputes about technology and the issues that have been raised with regard to uh, companies like Huawei and ZTE, 
but also the, uh, the, the hostage taking, uh, if that's the best way to describe it, uh, with regard to Meng uh, Wanhua and the idea that we're perhaps on the verge, uh, at least according to recent reports, of coming to some sort of conclusion with regard to the situation with the uh, Canadians in China who have just been tried uh, and the possible release uh, in, in some way of Meng from uh, her uh, British Columbian hostage situation. It's an unfortunate and, and ultimately counterproductive way to conduct diplomacy uh, to engage it in these terms. I mean, I think that you know, I have to say in these things, we're all grownups and we recognize that in situations like this, um, information security is, is very problematic and very important. And so every, each side is going to take the steps that they need to do uh, to protect valuable interests in the cyber and, and internet domains. We also have to recognize that the that isn't going to dissuade the other from trying to figure out how they can get access to the information. So we need to, to recognize this is going to be an extremely contentious area uh, in which it may be possible to find some agreed rules of the road, but it is going to be one in which we, we joust with one another. And so we have to find ways to manage that ongoing problem because it is, it's not capable of solution and neither side has an interest in particularly in solving it, uh, but each side needs to find ways to protect its own interest, uh, consistent with trying to, again, be able to pursue other uh, common uh, activities with the other. But we, we've had technological competition, uh, usually with, uh, with allies or at least countries that we weren't uh, in an inimical relationship with. And what seems different about this is that at the same time that there's this, uh, you know, commercial and, and, and trade aspect to the relationship uh, that's complicated because of the competition that, you know, American and Chinese companies have for the sort of, you know, international business uh, in uh, telecommunications and cybersecurity. Uh, but it's at the same time coupled with this idea that there's a strategic threat, which we didn't feel, uh, say, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Germany in the post-war era or uh, other uh, technologically advanced uh, countries with which we have, you know, a friendly commercial competition, uh, but not this uh, strategic uh, inimical relationship. Well, certainly right, but I think it's pretty obvious why that is the case. I mean, I think that there are two features here that distinguish what's going on between the United States and China in the technology realm with what went on with us and our allies. The first is that the Chinese entities uh, although nominally private, are not private. I mean, and I think it's pretty clear that that even though they they kind of create the, the the legalistic shell of being private, they are responsive to the Chinese government. And so, any information or technology that they acquire is available to the Chinese government. We have to act on that basis. And that connects to the second, which is how would the Chinese government use that information? And to the extent that that information is used to gain military advantage or um, to gain uh, insights about uh, through you know, stolen information about Americans, that that's disadvantageous to us. I think in the, the competition with Germany or France or, or others, um, you know, we, we worried about intellectual property theft giving people an economic advantage, but we didn't particularly worry that that information was going to be used to our detriment by, by the German military taking this uh, information and turning into weapons that they were going to use against us or that they were going to use it to, to you know, learn about the interior, the internal deliberations of the U.S. government. And so we were able to keep those um, concerns about intellectual property security and 
and IP theft and the like in the economic domain, whereas it's not possible here. We would still have problems with China if, if this were in the economic domain, just as we had problems with IP theft from some of our allies um, uh, at an earlier stage. But it would be far less troubling than a situation where the technology and the access to technology is being used in ways that, that could harm US interest. Well, and I think it also comes from you know decades of suspicion about the, uh, the uh, ability of the Chinese to engage in what's essentially intellectual property theft. Uh, and that uh, this is something that uh, was you know, ongoing for de decades and uh, we didn't take a firm enough stand against it. And now we've discovered that uh, they've become a powerful competitor uh, and uh, we're worried about you know, essentially the Chinese, uh, economically speaking, eating our lunch. Yeah, but again, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to underplay the, the economic dimension of this. That they, that, and, and certainly American firms have a right to be concerned when any foreign competitor uh, illegally appropriates their intellectual property. What I'm saying is if this were only in the economic sphere, you know, there are things that we could do and we did do in the past when others stole our intellectual property, including some of our allies who stole intellectual property. But, but the reason this is so problematic is because it goes beyond the economic sphere. This technology and this information that's being stolen is being used not just to advantage the commercial activities of Chinese firms, but it's to harm the United States interest more broadly. And I think that's what makes this so contentious. And that's what's led to a, a much more determined effort. I mean, and it's not new, by the way. I mean, when I was in government in the Clinton administration, we had concerns and the Congress had concerns about uh, what was happening as a result of, of uh, satellite cooperation between American firms and Chinese firms and Chinese getting access to intellectual property of American um, companies that were building and launching satellites to help the Chinese military. So it's, it's, it's not a new problem in this domain, but it is much more severe because it involves security as well as economic competition. Yeah, and um, speaking of security interest, uh, one of the things that uh, I think uh, has been a topic in this uh, symposium for the last two days, uh, the idea of you know, China's strategic moves uh, globally, uh, starting with the South China Sea, uh, but also in the uh, what we've now tagged as the Indo-Pacific region, uh, where we've had uh, a long-time strategic interests, but also because of the U.S. Seventh Fleet and you know the, the results of the outcome of the Second World War, uh, a kind of American dominance that seems to now be seriously threatened by China's rise. Well, it's a, it's a very serious issue, but there, again, there are multiple dimensions to this. I mean, there's a there's a security dimension, there's an economic dimension. And I think it's important to try to pull apart some of the different elements. Um, I think it's not surprising that as China becomes more military capable, that they don't particularly want the United States to have a dominant military presence in their near abroad. Um, we don't have to agree to that. We have reasons to be there and, we're, and I have every reason to expect we're gonna say it, but it's not something that China would be expected to uh, be happy about or comfortable with and certainly would want to challenge. And so while it's, it, it poses challenges for us, the fact that China doesn't like the United States operating in the Western Pacific is, is I think a predictable consequence of China's growing military capability. What's different from that though, is when China is not just objecting to the US military, what they perceive as the US military threat to China, but China threatening basic principles of international law like freedom of navigation or the understandings about um, uh, the, the 
territory and, and the adjacent uh, waters under international agreements like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. There, China is just simply flouting agreed international rules that it had actually signed up to. And so there, uh, China's actions which threaten freedom of navigation, which seek to make claims that are beyond uh, what are broadly accepted uh, in international uh, law of maritime spaces and, and, and uh, island formations and the like, represents a direct threat to an agreed rule of law um, that is not just a security problem, but it's attempted China to impose its way of doing business for its benefit, not just on the United States, but on everybody else. Well, it is a threat to uh, our treaty allies. You know, we have uh, commitments both to Japan and South Korea, uh, but also I think a wider understanding of, uh, you know, what our obligations are to uh, other countries where we have historical interests, even though some of them like the Philippines uh, may not be as mindful of them now as they, they once were. Uh, and that's also going to be a flashpoint between the US and China. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that again, you know, the, we have to take each of these issues and look at them. So China's actions in the East China Sea, and particularly its um, interference in the, the waters around the Senkakus is an aggressive act um, and, and does implicate the US security commitment to Japan. Um, there's no doubt about that. And I think China needs to understand that the United States takes this very seriously. Similarly, its operations in and around Scarborough Shoal, which are an infringement on, on, on the Philippine sovereignty as recognized by the UN orbital uh, panel, uh, the UNCLOS orbital panel, um, is something that does implicate our, our uh, commitments and our obligations to the Philippines. And I think this is you know, a really serious area uh, for China to understand about the consequences of what uh, its actions represent. And I think too, one, one dimension that may have changed significantly is that when it was seen as primarily a commercial interest, um, that was one thing, but the, the mil military advancement of China, particularly the, the PLA Navy, uh, seems to uh, create a, a much greater concern uh, than China's you know, claims uh, even back several decades about the historical nine dash line and things like that, uh, when it didn't look like China was going to be able to you know, make good on uh, what were perceived threats uh, to impose uh, its sovereignty over a, a wide swath of the South China Sea. Well, that's absolutely right. And it's, it's not just the military, as you know. I mean, it's also the economic coercion that goes with it. Um, and we've seen that, you know, with respect to Japan, when uh, China cut off the, its access to rare earth um, uh, exports. We've seen this with respect to the Philippines, in which uh, China has clearly made uh, economic relations with the Philippines contingent on the Philippines, uh, not uh, challenging China's actions uh, too aggressively. And clearly, the for the Philippines, the, mar the Chinese market is very important. So we're seeing, we saw attempts by China to use that economic leverage against Australia in terms of uh, uh, Australia's natural resources exports uh, uh, to China. So it's, it's both military and economic coercion uh, that I think is the growing concern and China's increasing willingness to flex its muscles. And, and I guess the uh, muscle flexing goes along uh, both on economic and military lines with the programs that you know, China has been advancing uh, over the last decade or more, things like the One Belt, One Road, uh, the idea that this is something you know, that's China's rightful place in the world, uh, politically, militarily, economically, uh, and uh, in, in a way they've been kept back too long uh, by their unwillingness to be assertive. 
Yeah, but again, I think it's very important to, to try to disentangle the, the, the various lines. I mean, they, there are huge infrastructure needs in uh, Central Asia and Southeast Asia in East Africa. And everybody benefits by having the opportunity for greater investment to flow into these areas, which have been starved for capital and need the infrastructure improvements, which are hard to finance through the private sector. Some can be done, but not all can be done in the private sector. So the fact that China is in there is, is a good thing if China doesn't try to use this to extract conditions, concessions, or to, uh, to take actions that would damage the independence of these countries. And so the, you know, our goal should not be you know, to tell China, you don't have any business there, or you can't, you don't have a right to invest in these countries. It's to say, if you're going to do it, here are the rules of the road um, that have been agreed by countries over the years about how we do this kind of development assistance, infrastructure loans and the like, under the principles developed by the DAC and by um, the Asian Development Bank over the years, and to try to get China to operate within that framework. Oh, but, I, you know, again, I think that it's there. The China has a voice in these organizations. There's been a lot of discussion within all of these organizations about institutional reform within the World Bank, uh, within the IMF and the like. Um, and I think it's certainly appropriate as China becomes a donor rather than a, a borrower. It, it's entitled to have a voice commensurate with its contribution to these organizations. But I think what's critical is on the one hand for us to recognize that China can and should be involved. On the other hand, for China to recognize that if it's gonna go out and create parallel institutions with different principles that raise questions that, that there's gonna be an unwillingness of others to be feel relaxed about China's activities in that respect. And I think what well, we've seen this in, in the connection with the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, the AIB, where, um, you know, China has, in some respects, because it's tried to create an alternative institution but include others in it, has been forced to try to move more towards the international norms and how that the AIB operates. Well, that, that also, you know, brings up the, the question of, of what kind of uh, reaction there may be in these places where China is now extending its, uh, its economic as well as its uh, political influence, uh, partly because of the Chinese investment. Uh, we've seen this, you know, of course, United States and, and, and other major powers throughout history have uh, seen a, a negative reaction sometimes by uh, people who feel that they're colonized or semi-colonized by a uh, more powerful uh, economic and uh, political power. Uh, and this is something that uh, may be coming to haunt China as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that the, we, we should all learn from our own experiences. We had some, some issues in our past, especially in terms of our uh, economic uh, diplomacy in, in Latin America. Um, at an earlier point in our history, the British had problems from their economic diplomacy in, under the empire. And you know, we've seen that um, countries are not particularly um, grateful if they feel that these investments are not going to benefit them and are designed to advance China's interests at their expense. Whether it's economic interests, where China uh, makes the investments but employs Chinese workers rather than local workers on the projects, or whether they make the investments contingent on uh, uh, cooperating with China on uh, other issues, political issues in the UN or the like. And I think over time, countries are smart about these things. You know, we've seen the countries, uh, although uh, can be pressured by China, also can resist. And I think one of the things that's important now 
and we see this, there's been a lot of leadership from Japan in this respect and some from our own Congress with the Build Act, is that if we give countries an alternative, um, it not only gives them a way of not being coerced by China, but it also requires China to compete on more equivalent terms, which is in a less coercive way. Well, and that also raises the question of, uh, is you know part of what uh, China's doing sort of testing the resolve of the United States uh, and its interest in you know continuing to play a major role or the, the pullback that, that some noticed, especially with the, uh, the Trump administration, but maybe even before that uh, this was a, a, a willingness on the United States part uh, to pull back and China rushing to fill the void. I think it is, you know, that's obviously an important question is whether the United States demonstrates its commitment there. I mean, I, again, don't want to sound partisan, but when, when President Obama came to office, one of the first things that he did uh, was to emphasize the centrality of our engagement in, in the Asia Pacific um, by joining the East Asia Summit, by signing the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation with ASEAN, by deepening our ties with ASEAN and the like. Um, we, I think, understood, and President Obama understood, Vice President Biden at the time understood, that we needed to demonstrate our long-term commitment to the region uh, and that we had a full range of interests there that we intended to engage in, including strengthening our military capabilities and our partnerships with countries in that region. I think we got a mixed message during the Trump administration, but we've had no mixed message from the early days of the Biden administration about that determination. There's a lot of speculation that China um, uh, read in and overread into the, the financial crisis of 2008-2009 as sort of a long-term uh, deterioration of the U.S. position, and that, that, that may have stimulated some of the more assertive policies of China. Uh, but I would hope by now that uh, China would see that the United States economy is pretty resilient and there's a pretty strong commitment within the United States and I think a bipartisan commitment in the United States to sustain our presence and to resist Chinese efforts uh, to either push us out or uh, to assume that there's going to be a vacuum because we pulled ourselves out. Well, in a, a sort of weird echo of the uh, experience in 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis, uh, I think there's also been some discussion, uh, especially on the Chinese side, uh, that they're uh, bouncing back quickly from the, the COVID uh, crisis and the, what seems to be the, uh, the slow return to normal in the United States uh, is some demonstration of either the superiority of the Chinese model or uh, just the uh, greater resiliency that, uh, you know, that their system has uh, because of the ability to marshal uh, resources and uh, you know, uh, make people comply compared to the more laissez-faire approach of the United States, which um, you know, has prolonged uh, the, the, the COVID uh, situation that we're still in. Well, there's no doubt that we're in, a, we're in a soft power competition as well as a hard power competition with China. And I think it's important for us uh, to demonstrate what I think we all believe, which is that our system is superior in, in, in every respect, in terms of its economic dynamism, in terms of its individual freedoms and liberties, in terms of its uh, ability to uh, partner with other countries in a, in, a, in a true partnership way and not in a way of dominating or a tributary state. Um, and I think that's a reason why the Biden administration correctly has focused on strengthening ourselves at home as part of the competition with China abroad. I mean, we do have to demonstrate that our, our, our system is strong, resilient, and dynamic. Uh, and there have been questions. Again, I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on the past administration and, and what I clearly believe were the mistakes that they made that were costing the United States both at home and abroad. 
but I think there's still a, a strong conviction among many countries. I think it's important to recognize that um, Chinese soft power is pretty weak right now. If you look at all the public opinion surveys around, particularly around East Asia, but around the world, there's not a lot of admiration uh, for the Chinese system. Uh, there's a lot of you know, people are aware of, of, of the repression at, at home in China, what's happening to minorities, what's happening to freedom of speech, what's happening to people who disagree uh, with the government, what's happening in Hong Kong. Uh, and so uh, China has a pretty weak hand. It, it, it may be uh, able to show that it's recovered from uh, the pandemic. And I think it's important that we learn some of the lessons for pandemic and, and, and public health from China, but not just from China, because it wasn't the only one that did it. It's important to recognize that China had some success in containing um, COVID, but guess who had even more success? Taiwan. Right, so you don't have to have an authoritarian system uh, to have that kind of success. And uh, that fact, uh, combined with our own attention to the deficiencies in our own response, I think would put us in a better position for this long run uh, competition between us. Well, I agree that there are probably very few countries that you know, would uh, want to uh, necessarily import a Chinese model. Although there has been talk of you know, a Beijing consensus to replace the Washington consensus that was talked about a decade or so ago, um, I, I don't see any convergence on uh, a model that's sort of based on uh, what China's been doing with its, uh, its politics and its economy uh, over the last several decades. Um, but uh, the uh, the mention of Taiwan uh, uh, makes me uh, think of bringing up a couple of the uh, the other things that have complicated the U.S.-China relationship, but also the perception of China in the world. Um, and uh, before we get to Taiwan, uh, thinking about more recently what's been happening in Xinjiang uh, and also Hong Kong uh, suggests that uh, on the periphery, uh, China has a, a lot of you know, difficult to resolve political problems and the steps that they're taking aren't necessarily salutary uh, and certainly don't improve China's image in the rest of the world. For sure, and I think that people Again, the, the, the implications, whether it's wolf warrior diplomacy or, or the repression in Xinjiang, uh, and the violations of human rights in Xinjiang, or the, the, the reneging on the commitments to the people of Hong Kong in terms of their political system, are just going to convince everybody else that China is problematic. And, if it, and while China might want to draw, try to draw a distinction between how it treats its own people and how it treats others, it's going to make other countries and other peoples very wary about a world in which China is a very influential actor because they, they will rightly worry about how China will use that influence. And so I think it is costly for China uh, in terms of its relations with others. People see what's going on. And I think they, first of all, uh, sympathize with the people within China, including in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, um, about the treatment that they're receiving, but also lead them to, to question what the long-term objectives and, and approach is of the Chinese government towards other countries. And I think Hong Kong is particularly problematic because it's always been, you know, sort of uh, greater China's uh, window to the rest of the world, especially when China was much more closed off in the, in the early uh, years of the People's Republic. Uh, and uh, there you know, are a lot of foreigners there. There are a lot of uh, foreign observers there. The, the foreign press uh, has a significant presence there. Uh, and uh, so everything that happens there is, is you know, closely documented and watched. Um, it's a little different in the situation in Xinjiang because 
it's it's remote, uh, it's difficult to get to, and you know China's better able to control access to that uh, than has been the case with Hong Kong. Although, I mean, to the credit of, of the NGOs and others, we know a lot about what's going on in Xinjiang. And, and so the Chinese have not been successful in hiding that. Uh, and, and I think that's a, it's, it's a very important contribution that the, the civil society has made is to highlight these things, to make sure that the word gets out, the images get out, the stories get out. I think in the world we live in today, even with as much control over the media and information as the Chinese government has, you know, things get out. And so uh, I don't think China should assume it can get away with things in remote places uh, just because they're remote or that because China controls the media and access to information. I guess it's a good news story. It's the only good news story about the Xinjiang situation is that we actually do know quite a lot about the, the, the human rights violations, the serious human rights violations that are taking place there. The thing about Hong Kong that's particularly troubling is not only is this a violation of universal principles and universal values, but it's also a reneging on the commitment that China made at the time. I was actually with um, Secretary Albright at the reversion ceremony um, uh, for Hong Kong in uh, 1999. And there's no question that people were worried and skeptical even at the time, but they, one should have no doubt that the premise of the international community's support for that transfer of power was based on some very explicit commitments that China made. And so China should understand if you're going to violate the commitments you made to others, they're going to draw consequences from that. Well, I, I, I know that's uh, the object of diplomacy, but you know, on the on the one hand, you know, China made a, a significant uh, international declaration uh, with the UK uh, about the handover of Hong Kong and how that was supposed to you know proceed, uh, which the British have you know, recently said China is in violation of. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be very much that the British or the international community can do about that. I think we have to, again, when you talk about what, what we do about it, I think we have to think about what's the purpose of what we do. And I think the, the key message here has to be that people are not going to make agreements with China or take China's word for it. When China says, oh, well, we have peaceful intentions in the South China Sea and we've signed all these agreements and you know, confidence measures, I think people are rightly going to say, yes, and you signed these agreements with Britain on Hong Kong. Why should we trust you? Why should we believe you? So it, it does have consequences. It's not just a question of imposing sanctions on China for what it's doing in Hong Kong or punishing China for what it's doing in Hong Kong. It's recognizing that it will change how people do business with Beijing, that, they, that people are entitled to treat Beijing as an untrustworthy partner when it behaves in an untrustworthy fashion. So I do think there are consequences and I do think they will have consequences going forward. People are not gonna be signing agreements with, with China if they don't believe those agreements are gonna be respected. Well, thank you. I think this has been a very interesting discussion and uh, you've shared a lot of your experience and wisdom with us from your decades of work in diplomacy, not only with the People's Republic of China, but more broadly. And we're very grateful for you providing this capstone to the two days of uh, seminars that the journal has been having. Well, thank you, General Spinner. Great conversation. I appreciate all your questions, your own insights from your long experience in, in dealing with China as well. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.